Hey everyone, my name is Josh Proctor and this is the Life on Side B podcast. On this podcast, we are going to discuss, as the name pretty much clearly states, what life as Side B LGBT Christians is really like. For those of you who don't know, Side B is a term used to refer to Christians who are LGBT, attracted to the same sex, or have gender dysphoria, yet hold a traditional view of sexuality and marriage, and therefore live according to that view. Every episode, I will be talking with different Side B Christians about different aspects of their life, faith, and experiences. My goal with this podcast is to show that being Side B is not this depressing life of self-hatred and loneliness, but rather, it can be pretty dang beautiful and amazing. Now, every season, we will be focusing on a different theme of sexuality and faith issues related to the lives of Side B Christians. This season, though, I am really excited because we are going to be looking at different ways Side B Christians live out their sexuality and find intimacy and community. Each of these interviews has been a huge encouragement, even for me, as I navigate what community and belonging look like in my own life. You will be able to see that there are so many different ways that Side B Christians can live with joy within their faith. And in that way, I hope it can be an encouragement for you too. So with that, let's head into today's episode. What's up, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of Life on Side B. I'm so glad you're able to join us. Today, I am talking with Matt about celibate partnerships. I so enjoyed talking with Matt, and this has been a topic I have really wanted to get to this season. And before we get into the discussion, I wanted to first uh, clarify that not all Side B people agree on celibate partnerships And that's okay. We don't all have to agree. But it's still important to acknowledge that this is a way that many Side B people have found community in their lives. And therefore, it's important to give a voice to those who are in partnerships and seeking partnerships and how that has been a source of community and a way of strengthening their faith. So I really cannot wait for you to hear from Matt, and I really hope you all enjoy it. Today, I am talking with Matt about celibate partnerships. Matt, thanks so much for joining. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. um, So to start, just so we can get to know you a little bit better. Can you just share a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, Hi, everybody. My name's Matt. Uh, Professionally, I guess you could say that my entire life has been spent in research in one way or another, whether it be corporate or government or more academic kind of focused things and beyond that as well. But that's work, and nobody likes talking about work. Um, Let's talk about hobbies. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm a voracious reader and I love sports. Yeah, and that's me. Do you want to know anything else? I don't know. Um, So what are you currently reading? What am I not currently reading? Um, (laughs) I like 
you know how these things go. We have so many books and we read like three pages of them at a time and they just kind of accumulate. Um, oh my gosh, I feel like you know my soul. Oh my, well, you know, if you came to my house, it would just be like this explosion of books. Uh. You would have to kind of wade through them. No, it's not that bad, actually. Yes. I'm reading a couple of things, but I think the one book that's really interesting I'm reading, I'm reading The Body Keeps the Score. I don't know if you've heard Ooh, about this book. No. It's a book um, written by a Dutch, I guess he's a psychiatrist, but I actually don't quite remember from his self-description, but he has spent his entire life treating people who have undergone some sort of trauma. And so he has these very rich perspectives on trauma and the type of effects that it has on the person. So um, frankly, I'm only about 40 pages into it, but it's already totally fascinating. And um, just the depth and the granularity, the insight that he has is really, really great. I have been so fascinated through this podcast, just even honestly, I mean, like, yes, the conversations that we've had, but also asking people what they're reading. Uh, I'm an avid book lover. And have you ever seen that meme about Beauty and the Beast where it says, like, some people, well, some girls have dreamed of the prince, and I just dreamed of that library. <laughs> and I'm like, that's my childhood. I dreamed yep. of Belle's library uh, because I loved it. So my other question then is, you said you love sports. What kind of sports do you play? Ice hockey. Actually. Ooh, okay. Ooh, yeah, I know. Um, yeah, no, I used to be at a point when I was actually playing about eight times a week, so twice on Sunday. Wow, I was about um, to say, I'm like, there's not even enough days. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I know. That was when I was a little bit younger and a little bit sprier, but um, mm. if I did it now, I don't know that my back would survive to the end of the week, but <laughs> that's okay. Uh, I still do it, and, you know, it's just killer-grade exercise. Um, yeah. And in general, you meet some pretty decent people through it too. And I don't know if you've ever meet, met hockey people, there's this weird culture of hockey people that mm. um, you kind of have to see to understand because, you know, it's kind of the fourth sport in the United States. And so, yeah. although it's gaining popularity. So when a hockey person hears someone else say like, Ooh, I like hockey suddenly like antenna go off and your radar is on and you just kind of glom onto that person and have, the hockey conversation with them for about yeah. an hour. Yeah. Huh. Very interesting. Yeah. I always think of hockey as like more of a Canadian sport, which I mean it is, but it's, it's interesting. Good. It is, but I also love Canada. So yes, well, that's true. Um, <laughs> Canada is great. Before we get into the conversation, I do want to say um, to everyone listening, this has been a conversation I've been really looking forward to having. I would probably say this has been one of the ones I've been most excited about is starting to talk about celibate partnerships, mostly because it's, maybe it's just because it's one of the most controversial and I just love controversy. Um, but I think another one is because it's, it's one of the things that I feel is so unique about Side B and it's not often talked about. And so those two things just by themselves make it fascinating to me. And so I want to um, clarify with people, you know, this is um, one of the more controversial topics in Side B. And that's okay. But I still think it's important that we talk about it because this is a reality in a lot of our community's lives. And, and so um, I'm so excited to be able to talk. And they, I just want to thank you again, Matt, for, for doing this. No, I mean, it's my pleasure. It's um, obviously a topic that's really important to me and uh, to be able to share some ideas and I guess join the conversation, it's a good opportunity. Yes. So then 
to kind of start a little bit, go in depth a little bit more, can you share a little bit about how you identify and how you've gotten to where you are in reconciling your faith and sexuality? Sure. I identify as gay. Uh, I do not tend to use any other terms than that. Um, mm-hmm. And there's kind of a long story, I guess, behind why that's the case. I think uh, for the most part, um, even though obviously I'm not a sexually active person, I still feel that my sexuality plays a very active role in my life um, mm-hmm. in pretty much any situation that I'm in. You can't really turn off that aspect of yourself as you go through. And some of the other designators that I think, you know, people inside B um, are asked to use to describe themselves, whether intentionally or not, they kind of have the effect of making that aspect of yourself seem just like this cordoned off thing that you can't really do anything with in your life, even if it's in a totally kind of Christian way. Yeah. Um, So, so yes, that's, um, that's how I identify. And those are the reasons why primarily in terms of reconciling my faith, I was baptized in the Catholic church, but frankly, beyond that, there wasn't really much in the way of religion in my house. We didn't really talk about the Bible. We didn't talk about God. We didn't talk about theology. It just really wasn't present there. So unlike a lot of people who have this kind of Christian background that goes back to their youth, uh, I didn't really have that kind of ability to recall Christian ideas right off the bat. So faith-wise, what I have is pretty much um, something that I've gained on my own, largely as I came into my young adulthood. I just became increasingly interested in faith. I became increasingly involved in church activities. A lot of the way that I got into it initially again was just through music and joining a choir. And that just became one real Mm. strong avenue for me to start to learn more about um, Christianity and its history. And I should say that I am a member of the Catholic Church. Mm. Um, Eventually, as all of that was going on, later on, you know, I I realized what my sexuality was. And... uh, you know, for a while, I just sort of tuned out what it was that Christianity had to say about that and led what was more or less a side A existence. Um, And then eventually, I sort of just felt that I had to really deal with the content of this a little bit more seriously. So I started studying scripture more, I started studying church tradition more, I started really trying to listen to what was going on in my own heart and my own sort of spiritual impulses a little bit more. And that led me then to make uh, I don't know, make a pledge isn't quite the right word, but I, I guess just you know take the plunge into trying to be side B, and uh, to see how that would change my life. I actually remember the day that it, w- it happened. I was in D.C., walking around in Dupont Circle of all places. If you don't know about Dupont Circle, it, you know it's mm-hmm. it's the gay neighborhood of, of Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in the circle itself, where a big fountain is. Um, and I was just reading a book outside. It was a Sunday afternoon. I was going to be going to um, an evening mass. And I just said, you know, I've been thinking about this for so long, thinking it over, thinking it over. Why not just try and be side B and see if this makes life easier? And frankly, in the moment of doing that, I don't know, just I, I felt the impulse of the spirit. And that's really what set me down the side B path. And I've been on it ever since. And I guess the story from that moment to this moment, which probably spans, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13 years by now, uh, is kind of the story of coming full circle. Because it started out with that moment of spiritual impulse. 
And then I went through this whole phase where I wanted to have a really, really good, rigorous, like naturalistic reason for being site B. Tried to like make site B communicable to people who have absolutely no interest in religion or God or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And that became a total preoccupation of mine. And I can't say that I didn't benefit from it. There are a lot of ways that it was beneficial, but I realized that at the end of the day of thinking things through along those lines for so long, that really the best reason for doing this was the first reason I had, which is that, um, you know, I felt the impulse of the spirit. I am following this path sort of as a display of my trust in God. Um, I'm giving myself radically over to God and that, really is the thing that that sustains me on it to this day. Um, I I guess when I look at Christ in particular, I don't see kind of like Jesus meek and mild, that figure that we do see crop up in Christian circles a lot. I see Jesus like the radical message bringer, Jesus like the radical proponent of self-sacrifice and how it is that any particular person's decision to be self-sacrificial can have these ripple effects in the people around them. And um, I don't know, I I take that as kind of the basic idea of my model for pursuing the side B path. I don't know exactly what its effects are more broadly outside of myself, but I guess I trust that there's something going on there. So that's the story. That's awesome. I mean, I love being able to talk to someone else who's been side A before becoming side B. And I totally relate to the whole thing of just being kind of moved by the spirit to give this, you know, a try, you know, like to see what this could be like to be side B because that it's very similar to what happened to me. And I think so many times Christians think that like somehow think that you can argue your way to making someone live as we want, or I don't know, as we live when really that comes from the spirit. It comes from an encounter with God convicted to live in a way that he desires for us to live. And so many times that I talk to people who've gone from side A to side B, like that's been why, because they had an encounter with God saying like, this is, this is where I'm calling you. This is, this is where I'm leading you to. So thank you for sharing that. Well, um, no, and, it, and the other thing about that too, you know, is like, if you are just trying to make it this thought exercise for yourself, then you are turning it into something that you're trying to power through this, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas like side B should be about making God your sustainer on this path. Yes. It's like, you know, he is what energizes you. He is what motivates you. And I don't know. I mean, I think again, like having the reasons to do it is perfectly good. And I think perfectly necessary in its own way, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's intimacy with God. That's ultimately the point. Yes. So true. I mean, that's, I think I've talked about it here on this podcast before of when I've gone through those periods of saying, why am I side B? Why am I side B? And, and it's ultimately intimacy with God. It's ultimately my relationship with Jesus. Jesus, that's the reason why I yep. live as I do. Because if it's not because of Jesus, then no other reason's really going to en- end up lasting at all. Right. So, yes. Yeah. And, and kind of moving a little bit, moving into more directly into celibate partnerships, I guess it would be good to start with the fact that probably many people listening may say, what is a celibate partnership? <laughs> um, I know for me, before I got into the side B Facebook group, which I think I've mentioned here before, 
the person who had invited me warned me saying, listen, there's some people that are in celibate partnerships and me being a person who had been side A and then went side B, I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> and they explained it to me and I'm like, that's so weird. I mean, I'm just being honest. That's what I thought. And then as I got to know people who have been in celibate partnerships, it was just, it was, it was a new world for me. So how would you, just for those people listening who may not know the term, how would you define a celibate partnership? So there's the simple answer and then there's kind of the more complex answer to that question. Um, let's go both. Why not? Let's go both. Okay. We'll start simple and then we'll get real. Um, mm -hmm. So the simple answer is that it is two people who have felt, like I mentioned, the impulse of the spirit to be celibate. Mm -hmm. um, they want to, in the first place, encourage each other on that path together and then to build a sort of communal life around that shared conviction. They, the next layer, I think, is that, you know, they want to have someone to prioritize in their lives. And it's just because there is that shared conviction and that shared self, uh, sense of self-sacrifice, which is so profound that the it opens up a space for people who have that shared conviction to prioritize each other in a pretty profound way. And I think, you know, that's kind of like the Cliff's Notes version of it. Yeah. The truth of the matter is, is that I think as I go along in this partnership, I understand less and less really what it is. We kind of went into this together, having some vague general shared ideas about what it was. But then as we've gone along, we realized that some of the best kind of definitions that have come our way or some of the best thoughts about what make a celibate partnership what it is have only come to us after we've received a question from either friends who are curious about what we're doing or some other side B person who may be critical about what we're doing or just people who are saying, you know, here you two guys are doing this thing and we have no way to make sense of this. And here are our questions. And each time we receive a question like that, it really forces us to kind of sit down and think and say, wow, we actually don't necessarily have the greatest answer for this offhand. So we kind of need to go circle back together and uh, work through that and then get back to you. It's sort of like the celibate partnership is this real thing that we share, but there's a lot about it that we haven't exactly put our finger on yet. And so that outside input has been really, really invaluable um, mm. to help us down that path. And I think, huh, um, two questions in particular have come up most frequently for us. The first question is, okay, so in, like in our case, just to be clear, we don't live together. We don't live in the same city. But even if we did live in the same city, we actually would not be living together. And there are various reasons why we've made that choice. Mm -hmm. um, so when we present that fact to people, they're like, okay, so really at the end of the day, you know, you guys are not sexually active. You're not living in the same city. What is the difference between what you're doing and just a best friendship? And probably like the first 20 times we received that question, we said, wow, we don't really actually have the greatest answer for this. So we, went back and we thought about it. And I think the, the first answer that we came to was to say, look, I think despite, again, despite the fact that we're not sexually active, this relationship is in its own way, 
if not based in at the very least like constantly referencing the issue of sexuality yeah right we came together entirely because of this shared conviction and of this shared idea that we're going to walk this path together and so we can't help but make that at the center of our relationship in some way we have to talk about it we have to work through the struggles together um, we have to be there for each other um, especially in moments when frankly we might be attracted to each other and discuss what that means and we just didn't see that a best friendship started from that point like we mm -hmm. thought that that was kind of a critical difference other people might disagree i don't know and then the other question that we got a lot was okay so you're talking about priority as being this big idea for a celibate partnership and that you want to have someone to prioritize over anybody else in your life and when they were saying well i can prioritize my best friend over anybody else in my life if i so choose and in fact many people say well, they do prioritize their best friends yeah um, over anybody else so what's really the difference between that and you and so again, we got that and then we kind of took some time and thought it through. And I guess the answer we came up for that question was that we, we call it the priority transfer problem. So the idea is that if you're, <laughs> if you're a person who's prioritizing your best friend, say that both of those people find spouses and get married, right? Mm -hmm. You could transfer that priority that you're giving to your best friend to your spouse really really easily yes um and without there being any difficulty coming up between you in fact it would be a moment of congratulation right in our relationship to take that priority and to give it to anybody else with i don't know maybe the exception of like taking on a religious order of some sort uh it could not be a congratulatory moment like that would signal that something yeah. fundamental has changed in the relationship and mm -hmm. it probably wouldn't be a positive outcome so at this point those are kind of the best insights and answers that we've got about it but there are a lot of people in celibate relationships who have been doing this a lot longer than we have i mean for us it's only been just about a year mm -hmm. um, and i know that there are people who have been doing it for like eight ten more years so I suspect that if you were able to interview one of them, they could give you a lot more insight than we could, but that's kind of where we are with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's been one of my things when deciding to talk about celibate partnerships on this season of the podcast was really kind of going, who do I interview? Because I think there's two main things is a lot of people who are in celibate partnerships are very quiet about it mm. for multiple reasons. And I can't blame them um, because it's a relationship that conservatives don't understand. And it's a relationship that side A people don't understand. No one really understands it because it's so new. And so there definitely are people, and I'm hoping to get some people on here to talk later on who, who have been doing it for uh, you know um, longer periods of time. But I know that one of the biggest things from just my conversations with people in celibate partnerships has been it's kind of one of those things that you learn as you go because it's so new in yep. a sense in and not even a sense that hasn't like what I learned from people is that there really have been celibate partnerships happening for a while but mm -hmm. never in the public eye 
never in the public eye. Uh, it is really true how how many couples silently evenly open because of just either fear of people not understanding or just not wanting to explain. <laughs> I know. And whether they just let people think they're a couple, like a side A couple, or they let people think that they're just best friends. Um, yeah. I know people on both sides of that, that they let one or the other happen and they're like, you know what? I'm not even going to try. Um, and it's interesting how often that happens. Well, I mean, it's like you go into a bookstore and there's this total surfeit of books about marriage, right? Yes. And what you do at every stage of marriage and, oh, this problem came up. Well, this has been addressed 50,000 times before. So here are some options for how you go about it. And there's just nothing written about this. Yeah. And my goal, like before I, I pass on from this life would be to get a bunch of you know, people who are in celibate partnerships together and to write just one of those books so that it could be on the shelf in some church somewhere. Mm -hmm. So that if someone, you know, in the future were to pursue this path, they would have just a little bit of guidance, you know, on along the lines that some married people have, but absolutely. Yeah. Cause that's really a big thing that I just continually hear from people. And even also people that are interested in pursuing one is like, I don't know who to talk to you. I don't know where to learn about it. So I guess then kind of as we talk on, because I think this would be important for people to know is, could you share a little bit about how you and your partner met? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, we met online. There are you know kind of a number of different forums out there on the internet for site people to gather and talk in. And mm-hmm. uh, we were in one of those. And <laughs> frankly, in that forum, the topic was on celibate partnerships. And people were there and they were voicing their opinions. And just as any time that this topic comes up, you know, people from of all different viewpoints were there putting forward their perspectives. Um, but the one thing that we said that caught each other eye and we both kind of said it at the same time was, oh, yeah, if either one of us got into a celibate partnership, um, we wouldn't want to share a house. And he said it, I said it, we were like, oh, that's kind of interesting. So we, we got talking about why that was the case. And quickly we just sort of realized that we shared a lot more in common than we re- than just that point. We shared a conversational style. We shared interests in history and philosophy. You know, we shared in many ways a faith tradition at the same time. Again, I'm Catholic and He's not, he's Orthodox, but okay. um, the church that I go to is actually an Eastern Catholic church. So if you went to it, it would look in every, every bit like an Orthodox church. Um, and the prayers are the same for the most part. And, you know, there are no stations at the cross. There are just Byzantine icons. There are little stations to put candles in, all the, all the trappings of the Orthodox church. So yeah. we're able to talk about this kind of shared liturgical tradition in mm. a very real way. And there's a very strong overlap of interest there. So we just, you know, more and more we found that we had all of these things in common. Um, And this was just actually for a long time talking on instant messenger, you know, Skyping here and there. Uh, And then eventually it just, I said, Hey, why don't I come visit you? And so I did, we spent some, you know, four or five days together. And then I came back. And since then uh, I think there have been, 
in the range of five or six different visits that we've shared with each other. Um, so the relationship, you know, for the most part is still conducted like digitally or on the phone, mm -hmm. but it hasn't in any way diminished the depth of it. And, um, you know, in those moments when we are able to be in each other's presence directly, uh, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of meaning there. There's a lot of the ability to share hurts, share joys, um, share our thoughts and develop the relationship that much more. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's the story of it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how many times, like I feel of all the people who are in celibate partnerships, I almost always hear one of two narratives of how they met and both fascinate me. The first of all is like you guys meeting online meeting, because as you said, a huge, the major way that side B people meet each other, because there's so many across the country is online Yeah, in online forums and different things. Uh, and so meeting online and then the other one, really fascinates me uh, is people who are inside a relationships and then became side B together, which yep. again, fascinates me. And it's interesting because you guys are really, I know multiple other celibate partnership partners, couples, celibate couples who don't live together. But many times it's because just that's their plan. But at the moment they don't. So um, that's why it's very interesting to hear that, you know, that for you guys, that's, that's been one of the things that has united you in that understanding that that's just not part of our plan is to live together. That interesting. Go ahead. No, sorry. Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of things, I think probably each of our reasons for thinking that has changed a little bit over time. My thought on it always was, uh, well, in the first place, we're both, introverts kind of like borderline mm -hmm. introverts so we just like our space and we like recharge time and yeah. so there's that issue to deal with and just living separately that's totally functional though yes i think the other thing was that for me and i don't know that i ever totally convinced him of this was that i felt living separately sort of made the act of coming together for us feel that much more intentional mm. It's not like we sort of come home at the end of the day and it's like, well, you know, we don't have anywhere else to go. So we kind of have to deal with each other and see each other and, you know, have dinner together or whatever. It's like every time we are choosing to meet, we are choosing to meet because we want to and because we want to make that commitment all mm. deeper. And I don't know, I, I think that and then a combination of other things, there was this idea of intentionality that sort of was at the bottom of it that, um, really drove that decision. You know, when, when hearing that you guys had planned not to live together, that kind of brought up another point for me that I think a lot of times people ask about celibate partnerships, because I hear this a lot from people discerning whether celibate partnership is possibility for them, uh -huh. is how do you figure out boundaries? You know, and for a lot of people, that's a huge thing, you know, obviously. Um, I'm a very sexual person. Obviously, that's a huge thing for multiple side B people. Right. Uh, has that been something that you guys have had to discuss or has that been a struggle for you guys? Because I know a lot of people looking from the outside, that's almost always the first thing they think about is how do you keep boundaries, especially in the sexual part of things. Um, has that been something that you guys have had to talk about? How have you talked about? Has that been a struggle? Um, in a word, no. Uh, I don't know that we've really had any huge 
discussions regarding boundaries up until this point. Um, and I think it kind of goes hand in hand with what I was just talking about earlier with like the definition of the side B partnership that we're, yeah. that we're running with, which is, you know, we're starting from a place where we feel convicted by the spirit and to live a very, very particular path. And we're building around that, mm. you know? So like what we do emanates from that basic conviction. Um, a lot of people who want to think of the celibate partnership um, in terms of, well, where are the boundaries and where do they lie? They're thinking kind of in the opposite direction, right? Yeah. They're starting out from the idea of, well, there's marriage and that's clearly what everyone wants to do. And so what these people are doing is just marriage without the sex, mm. right? So they're saying exactly how close can they get to acting on sexuality, you know, without crossing the line, quote unquote. And we just don't see it that way at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have always said that if you try to get into a celibate partnership and you think of it in terms of boundaries, like you're going to be making life much more difficult for yourself. Mm-hmm. What you have to do is you have to check your motivations, you know, and it always has to be about, you know, I'm here to will the good for this other person. It always has to be about, I'm here to encourage this person in pursuing a relationship with Christ and I hope to be a vessel for that. Um, it always has to be, you know, in those moments where touch is shared and touch should be shared by all people, by the way, you know, it's like, I'm, we, we are sharing that for the purpose of healing and for the purpose of having a sense of togetherness. So I don't know. I mean, if you had, if you have that basic foundation in your heart, the issue of boundaries just never comes up. And if you frame it in terms of boundaries, I just think it's so much less productive, but that's just me. I think you hit on a really good point that a lot of times the issue is that we're always thinking of celibate partnerships as just a marriage without sex. Right. And some people may define their partnership that way, but I think it really comes down to looking at it not as a part, like this is not just a marriage without sex. And this is different than a committed friendship in the sense that like, it's almost like its own category of just accountability in a way is kind of, and you can correct me if I'm, if you feel like I'm stating this wrong, but it's kind of like this own category separate from that of let's push each other more into our calling. Let's, let's build each other up in where God is calling us together as two people who have um, been called to the same thing, you know, uh, not to compare it to marriage. I promise I'm not, but <laughs> I love what Dean in an earlier episode said about marriage, which is that he was talking about how he was discerning. He was going through the process of discerning marriage with his wife and they went to a pastor and they asked, why did you, the pastor asked, why did you want to get married? And they said, well, it's not actually about love. It's because we feel we can fulfill our calling better together than apart. Right. And that really impacted me because I feel like that doesn't just apply to marriage. That applies to many other relationships that mm-hmm. so many times we want to look at marriages of what can I get out of it? My attraction to the person, my whatever to the person when really we should be looking at how can we join our, can I pursue my calling better by being joined with this person exactly. in different ways than whether it's in a partnership, whether it's marriage, whether it's friendship, whatever it might be, how can we with a similar calling, push each other more and complete our partner, our calling more by being together rather than doing it separate. Yeah. 
no, absolutely. Um, something that we've just taken up doing recently, again, because we're in separate cities and we're not close and we have to mm -hmm. Skype a lot, is we actually do night prayer on Skype together. Mm. So he's got some icons in his room. I have some icons throughout my house and whichever night it is, we sort of just designate one or the other person to go find the icon of the night. And we, you know, get out the prayer books and we run through the Orthodox night prayer. And, you know, that's just sort of one example of the way in which, um, you know, having someone who you can sort of be that spiritually intimate with on a regular basis and have that be fully reliable. You know, there's never any question that we're going to be there to encourage each other down that path it is unique and it's necessary. And it's, it's uniquely productive of a healthy spiritual life, you know, to be able to have to, to, to be able to share that regularly with somebody. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's where two or three are gathered, right? Not mm -hmm. where one is gathered. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. And kind of then going along with that, what would you say has been your biggest struggle and blessing from being in a celibate partnership? I think like the biggest struggle that we've faced again, I think has been trying to understand how we present ourselves publicly in a lot of different mm -hmm. ways, mm -hmm. you know, um, to each other, we call ourselves partners mm -hmm. and to the people in our lives who we have had the big explanations with who understand everything about the, what we're doing, you know, who don't need to be reminded that this or that thing isn't going on. You know, we call ourselves partners, mm -hmm. but depending on which type of community we go into, there's a lot of self editing that we end up doing. Yeah. And you know that's, that's challenging um, because like, for example, when we go into, like a, a, a more traditionalist Christian environment, if we were to say that we're partners and that automatically conjures up all these thoughts in people and you then have to do a lot of backpedaling. And frankly, it's kind of a lost cause by that yeah. point. And people have already formed their opinions of you. So, you know, we, we have different words. Like we say, Oh, we're like really close friends or just friends or, you know, whatever idea pops into our head at the moment kind of really just situationally dependent mm -hmm. when we go into an environment where people are side a sometimes we're also a little res reticent there to call ourselves partners as well because um you know that gives off a sense that we're i don't know if belonging is the right word but um you know that we're speaking the exact same language as everybody else mm -hmm. and you know, it may seem a little bit disingenuous to to present ourselves that way. So there's yeah. a little bit of difficulty in using the language there. You know, in talking with our families, there are, I, I don't think the issue of, you know, conservative traditionalists or progressive um, whatever is, is so much the issue there. I think sometimes it's just with families, it can be just difficult to get this idea before them and to have them wrap their minds fully around it. Yeah. So that's why the word partner sometimes doesn't come out there either. Um, so yeah, I mean, just as we go from situation to situation, a fair amount of self-editing that we have to do and we have to think a lot about just the words we're using to describe ourselves. So that's, that, that can just get a little tiring from time oh, yeah. to time. 
I mean, like that's, that's something I continually, I feel like that is a constant struggle that I hear about from a lot of celibate couples Mm -hmm. is what do we call ourselves? (laughs) Like, what do I call you and what do you call me? And, and I think that's that whole thing of this kind of being in a sense, a new category of relationship that really the other categories that we have in our brain as Westerners doesn't it doesn't really fit any of them perfectly yeah and so trying to figure out maybe we need to just come up with a brand new term but um all of that to say i know that that is a huge issue and i think that really relates to the whole thing of what you said before is that this is not a marriage without sex and this is not that like this is something different and so therefore the terminology is going to be hard to find it is um and I don't know that it's something that we're going to have a clear answer for mm-hmm. anytime soon, perhaps in our lifetimes. I think, you know, this is something that I think gay people in general can relate to yeah. is like how self-editing can just become second nature, Yes, you know, and how you just, you just do it so effortlessly after a while mm-hmm. and you forget, like it, it, it still remains a lot of work and you still are tired out by it, but there's a strange way that you, don't feel you don't like consciously think about the fact that you're being tired out by it all the time. You just, just so it. used to do it. You just do it. Right. And I don't know. So maybe we had a lot of practice in store for doing this together. Right. I don't know. <laughs> right. I know. Oh, geez. The life. Um, oh no, it's really true. I've even noticed I do it without thinking I'm like, Whoa, that's mm-hmm. not right. It is not like, like I'll just talk do. and I'll just, I'll just share something. I'm like, that's actually not true, but that's just my editing happening. But sure, why not? We'll just go with that because I don't really feel like re-explaining now. I mean, you know, you can only deal with so many problems in one day. So yeah. sometimes a little self-editing might just be, you know, the expedient thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So then on the flip side of that, what would you say is the biggest blessing that's come out of your partnership? Well, I mean, it's it's been him, you know. Um, I think... Uh, you know, just having the opportunity to get to know someone very, very deeply, you know, to be there day after day to, again, like share struggles and share hurts, but also to share joys and hopes and, you know, to really dedicate myself to understanding another person. It it, it opens your sense of mystery up in so many ways, right? Like just to how complex people are, even if they you know, at first glance, you know, you can't see they're in a complexity. Like there's nothing like getting to know another person at that level that really helps you see um, <laughs> just everything that can go and ins- go on inside any given person. So I, I think there's that like kind of high level thing that's gone on for me there. I think the other aspect of this is, well, hold on, wait, do you, do you have a Myers-Briggs? I do. Are you willing to share? Sure. I am an INFJ. Oh my gosh. Okay. Are you an INFJ? I'm an INTP, but this conversation is about to get really interesting. Um, Yes, because I actually have, well, you go ahead and then I'll share my theory. It might be the same thing you're about to share. Yeah. So, so he is an INFJ. Mm -hmm. Um, And as we started out, you know, we shared our Myers-Briggs, which by the way, I don't actually put that much stock in, but does so happen that INFJ and INTP describe us perfectly. Mm. Um, So 
you know, good on Myers Briggs for scoring a lucky win there. Um, but what, so we did some research early on and we found that INFJ and INTP are called the golden pair. Ooh, the golden pair. Yeah. And the reason for that is because it's almost like we complement each other in exactly the ways that we need to be complemented. So you're INTP? I'm INTP. So that you're and saying that I need to find INTP in my life. You need to find yourself an INTP. And I'm going to do this. Set for life. All you INTPs, email me. <laughs> we'll talk. So to expand on this just a little bit more, the INFJs, and you probably will know this because you are one yourself, mm-hmm. your, I guess your dominant trait is having this very like keen empathic sense. Yeah. You know, you're able to kind of read people's emotions, even if they're only showing them in the slightest way and there and sort of, you know, commune with those emotions and understand them and make sense of them and react accordingly. INTPs were almost the exact opposite. We're kind of known to be a little emotionally vacant, but what we do have the ability to do is to like hear a thought or hear a question and kind of just tune out the world outside of us and sit in one place and think it through until we get to an answer. And once we get that answer, we're like, Ooh, we have to share it with the world and hopefully everyone will be interested. Mm. Um, so, you know, being with him, he's taught me a lot about being able to read other people's emotions mm. um, because that's something that just doesn't come naturally to me that well. Yeah. And and he just kind of appreciates my ability to see things and create ideas to try and make sense of them. And, and I don't know, it's just like a really, it's a really good match and we keep each other interested a lot because of that. And I think we learn a lot from each other because of that as well. So yeah. Ooh, that is really cool. Yeah. I have a theory about Myers-Briggs. Mm-hmm. It doesn't fit perfectly. Like for instance, you are the destruction of my theory, but I'm still going with it. That INFJ is the gay personality. Mm -hmm. Because, and this is my reasoning why, because on the Myers-Briggs stuff, it always says that it's like one of the rarest of the personalities. Mm -hmm. Anytime I ask in gay circles, what is your personality, like Myers-Briggs, it's literally the most common one every time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, maybe I found the gay gene. You know, I have actually seen, I wouldn't say data to this effect, but I would say um, kind of like an anecdotal summary, like an anecdotal argument, Mm -hmm. exactly along the lines that you said. I'm telling you, it's the gay gene scientists listening. I think there might be something to it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so true. <laughs> and kind of, you know, you talked about a little bit of it, about your family and the pastor, like the, sorry, the priest, the church that you visit sometimes when you get lazy, like I do. So could you kind of go in a little bit more of how your community has responded and supported totally you and your partnership? Um, so there aren't too many people at my church who know about it. And that's not because I've been hiding it from anybody. It's just because, frankly, I've never really had the occasion to talk about it with many people. Mm -hmm. Off the top of my head, I think there's one person who knows. And he has been totally supportive. And he gets it and doesn't require much explanation. So that's actually been very encouraging. And he's actually this person also happens to be 
uh, my closest friend at that church. So mm. we usually will go out for lunch after liturgy is done and to have conversation about this, that, and the other thing. And every mm. time, you know, the partnership is brought up, he's always interested in hearing more and understanding more. So from that aspect, I haven't had any problem at all. I don't know how other people would react within my church. It is um, trending on the more traditionalist side of things. And so if I were to, you know, tell people at large within the parish, I'm sure there would be some people who would give me kind of a little bit of a side eye there, mm-hmm. but, but I don't know. I could be wrong too. It just really, I have to wait and see. Um, there probably will be an opportunity for me to talk about it more at some point in the future from his end he has told like a handful of people either in his parish or in sort of the network of churches that he's affiliated with. And I think at the beginning there was a little bit of difficulty in understanding what was going on or, you know, general concern about where it could go, if it's going to go in a bad direction, whatever the case may be. But mm. actually all of those people have come around and are now really, really supportive of what we're doing because they've just, you know, they now are armed with that understanding mm-hmm. and they want to see us succeed. And, you know, there's no questioning anymore. They can be in our presence and there's easy conversations. So the, I think some people who have a little bit more difficulty with it are the people who actually aren't Christian. Sometimes what we see is that people react as if, uh, well, we really, really don't understand what you guys are doing. Like you're giving up sex for Jesus, what? And so they see what we're doing and they kind of interpret it as we're being a little self-harmful or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. So bringing uh, kind of secular friends around to that understanding can be challenging at times, but they're not unsupportive either. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know that that's a huge thing, especially because as we've already mentioned, a lot of celibate partner couples, you know, live kind of quietly. It mm-hmm. becomes hard to find support, hard right. to find support, not only just the people who are like, you know, accepting, but people who are like, I'm going to walk alongside you, you know, and yeah. walk with you through this because, because many people don't have experience with it. And so it takes some time many times to, to come to a place of understanding. So that's great that, in many ways, you guys have been able to find some people that have been supportive and have, you know, been able to open up and accept you in that way. And I mean, just having visibility with people on that level is so crucial. Yes. Um, you know, to sustaining the relationship, you know, because mm-hmm. it allows us to talk with them about it. But another thing is it allows he and I to talk about the fact that we can talk about it with them. And we found that to be very, very important, you know, because it, it allows us to have the feeling that we're not alone, even when it's just the two of us talking together. And there's a certain type of energy that comes from that, that really replenishes you. Yeah. So yeah, that's just been what we found. Absolutely. Yeah. And then my next question would be, how would you say your partner and your partnership help point you back to Jesus? We share a... Um, a deep love of tradition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and everything that has gone into it. And I think, you know, most of the conversations we ever have are about some aspect of that. You know, 
who said what about the meaning of the resurrection, who said what about the meaning of the transfiguration, you know, how do different faith traditions understand the Eucharist and why are we so convicted in understanding it the way that we do? I mean, there are so many different questions that go into understanding the life of Christ and what he offered by coming here. And, you know, that's the work of a lifetime in building up that understanding, you know? Mm -hmm. So he and I are constantly reading and we're constantly thinking about these things independently. And we come together and we kind of just review what we've thought over the course of the day. Um, And that enriches us mutually in our faith lives. Um, And that's, again, you know, a really, that is one of the many foundations of what we're doing together. It's the most important foundation of what we're doing together. And so I would just say that it, you know, always providing each other with new ideas, Mm -hmm. um, encouraging each other in prayer life, talking about scripture together, you know, loving the reception of the Eucharist and what in our traditions that means. There are just so many ways in which this has brought us to a closer understanding of Christ. And most especially in the prayer life, right? Like prayer is the thing that really in the depths of your soul brings you closest to him. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like being able to share that prayer life together, I think especially is really where, um, really where all of those benefits lie. I think it kind of connects to what you said before of trying to remember how you said it, but I'm not going to probably end up saying it the same way is that it's really about why are you getting into a part? Like if someone is called wanting to be in a partnership or called to be able to be in a partnership, the question is what are your motivations? What are you, what's drawing you to do that? You know, because I think so many times people on the outside think that being in a partnership is just about, like you said, how close can I get to the line Mm -hmm. without falling over? But I think that that's the wrong question. And if someone is going into a celibate partnership and with that understanding, yeah, it's probably not going to end very well. Maybe, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe well, you know, power to you people. Um, But I think it's really amazing when you can come into this thing of, we're here to point each other to Jesus. We're here to strengthen each other in our faith. Right. And that this is not just a way of how close do I get in to the line. This is a way of how do I know Jesus better right. through a relationship with another person. Right. And I mean, again, sort of like what I was mentioning earlier too, there's, there's a degree of openness that has to exist within the relationship yes. um, for it, for it to work. And, Oh, and what I'm thinking about specifically here, you know, is being really, really open about your sexuality mm-hmm. and how it's active in you, how it's working through you, you know, how you need to, you know, sort of repackage it in a Christian sense. I guess maybe that's not the best way of putting it, but I think you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, it's very, very difficult to be able to find someone to have that conversation with regularly yeah. um, in Christian circles. You know, but because it is, it it will remain within you an active part of who you are. If you need to talk about it, it's important to have someone who you can talk about it with. And we do provide that for each other. And, you know, the opportunity to be that honest and to have someone understand what it is that I'm talking about and where I'm coming from um, and saying like, hey, you know, 
I felt pangs of attraction today and this is how I felt in the wake of it. Or, you know, I'm sort of dealing with this issue of, you know, again, like trying to self edit or this in this or that circumstance. But in so many ways, just being able to discuss the difficulties and then the joys of it with someone who there is no lag time in understanding, just so important in keeping you on the path. I 100% agree. You know, I joke with people that probably my history of relationships is a history of what not to do in relationships. If you ever <laughs> want to know what not to do in relationships, look at my life and you will find everything not to do. Um, <laughs> and, but I do have to say that I think that one thing I've learned from my history of not to do in relationships has been the importance of honesty and vulnerability and whatever it is, is just being able to have that person that you can go to them and be able to say, listen, this is, this is what I'm going through. This is, and be able to have that person that you can go to and just be 100% vulnerable. And what I've found is that a lot of people, especially side B people who are looking at us from the outside tend to make the assumption that we're not having that conversation. Yeah. You know, they think that, you know, we are kind of just like cordoning off that aspect of our lives together. Mm. No, I would say we're, we're redirecting it together. Mm. Um, and so the conversation has to be there. And if I, I would really, really doubt that a celibate partnership could be all that successful. If that level of honesty about, you know, what you're feeling because of your sexuality um, wasn't there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And connected with all of that, we've kind of touched on this a little bit here and there, but I'd like to go right into it and talk about it sure. has been a huge thing with celibate partnerships is that there's a lot of people and including side B Christians mm-hmm. who feel that this celibate partnership should not be a valid option for side B Christians or especially this is among conservatives that it's, that it's a slippery slope into side A, you know, there have, there, there have been some celebrate partnerships that have gone side A. Uh Like it's important to acknowledge that that has happened with a few. Right. And that's a, that that's a concern that people have. And so for those people, you know, wherever, whether they're conservative, whether they're side B, whether they're side A, whatever they, wherever they are, well, how would you respond to those kind of concerns? A lot of things. Uh, I would say that for every, you know, side B partnership that has become a side A partnership, I could find you 10 side B partnerships where the partnership itself was actually what kept people most strongly on the side B path. Mm-hmm. And typically I think when a side B partnership does become a side A partnership, it, it, I don't, I'm not actually totally convinced in most cases that it's the like the partnership itself that actually brought about that change. Yeah. I think people are just typically going through like an intellectual change of conviction. Mm-hmm. It could have happened completely independent of the partnership. Even if the they hadn't time. been in the partnership, that exactly would have, ha- would have happened. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, there probably has been this or that instance where that isn't the case. So, I mean, the, you can't account for everything with one statement, right? But so, I mean, there's that issue. I would say also, you know, when people look at a side B partnership, immediately their reaction is to like fear for the worst. 
right? Mm -hmm. And I, I guess sort of as you said, I would say, okay, just maybe change your thought process a bit. Like instead of fearing for the worst, hope for the best, mm. you know, and then see if by doing that, your view on our relationship as a whole wouldn't change, right? You yeah. would start seeing the things in it that you find redeemable more and mm -hmm. more, you know? The truth of the matter is, is that, you know, side B partnerships can change in their appearance. You know, as people come to understand them more and more, the way they do things can change. I mean, like, again, this is not something that's terribly well fleshed out as marriage is, um, yeah. you know, so the reason why I say that is because, you know, if there's some aspect of a particular side B partnership out there that you find problematic or whatever the case may be, it may come to pass that that aspect of the relationship will change with time yeah. as they come to their own understanding. I mean, that's entirely mm -hmm. possible too. But I guess the point is like, try and hope for the best. Try and see that, you know, the, the motivations that we're acting on and that we're trying to, to run with and making the relationship work, you know, are genuinely and authentically rooted in a desire to live a good Christian life. Um, and that's really the end of it. Also keep in mind the point that you mentioned earlier. It's that for, there are a lot of side B partnerships that were previously side A partnerships, mm -hmm. right? Um, I know just thinking off the top of my head, four of those. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these are, when you move from a side A partnership into a side B partnership, you know, it's, um, the relationship still exists. Like there's still a lot of content there, you know, Ab like mm -hmm. aside from the sexual relationship, which isn't present in uh, the relationship anymore, but there's still so much shared history, so much shared knowledge, so much shared spirituality that you just can't get rid of at that point, you know? So, I mean, there's still so much content there to work with. There have been a, I have, I am, I was shocked as I learned, as I talked to more, more celibate partners, the couples, as I talked to more celibate couples, I was shocked at realizing how many were originally side A and then became side B together. Uh -huh. uh, or in a few cases, one person became side B and the other person was willing to become celibate for that person. It's a whole, you know, all of them are mixed, but it was interesting to me because it really showed how many times couples that come to the churches then decide, you know what, this, I do believe that being side B is where I'm supposed to be. And I think as gay marriage becomes more common and adoption among gay couples becomes more common. And if you're a church, if you're a pastor and you have a gay couple, side A gay couple who have adopted children, who then, um, then be, you know, decide, you know what, we think that we're supposed to become side B and celibate and you're guiding this couple and you tell them that they need to separate and completely break up their lives and break up their family when they have a child, that child is therefore going to grow up in a divided home and will probably grow up to resent you as the person who destroyed their home. And right. I think that it's going to be a very big issue that churches are going to have to start facing of what do we do when a gay couple comes to our church and actually decides yeah, we're supposed to become celibate. So what do we do now? And 
many times those couples end up in celibate partnerships. Right. And I think that this is something that the church needs to start thinking about looking to the future rather than just holding its feet into the past of how the church has interacted with the LGBT community and that it's going to become key. It's a key issue and a key option that we need to leave open to LGBT people. Is it messy? Yeah. But what part of life isn't like seriously, at least that's in my perspective. Like, and when I say messy, what I'm talking about is that it doesn't fit into the normal Christian circles of, of how life is supposed to be, you know? So like in, in that case know. in particular, like with uh, the people who are coming into the church who are already couples, maybe even have children and then are looking to become celibate, you know, typically when I hear stories like that, when I hear them written up on the internet, mm-hmm. the response is like, well, we're going to get them separate rooms in the house and kind of check in on them every now and then say, Hey, how you doing? Are you still praying together? And that's kind of the extent of like the pastoral care that people get yeah. at that point. Yeah, right? literally. So again, it gets back to this whole issue of, you know, there are practical realities that we have to think through about how they fit into the church, right? How does the church steward relationships that have made the commitment to living a traditional sexual ethic that were not previously, but still want to honor those aspects of the relationship that they feel they can still validly carry with them going forward. Mm -hmm. Right. And there needs to be a lot more thinking through what that means and how that's integrated into a community life. Right. So that it's not, so that it's truly pastoral, not just between the couple and then the um, religious authority in a particular church, but between those two and then the community at large, Mm -hmm. right? So that there's understanding being fostered and that so everyone's being supported in the way that they need to be supported. Um, I don't have the answer to that. (laughs) That's something that we're all working out. Oh yeah. I, I just think the biggest thing that I sometimes ask of churches and pastors and Christians is to allow people's stories to fit outside your boxes because many times, sorry, this, I don't know where this is all coming from, but I'm just going to start sharing it because some, for some reason this is in my brain is yeah, that we as Christians have to allow that people's stories are not going to always go as we think they need to go. And the way that they see their, them fulfilling their calling in Christ may not look like what we expected them to. And we have to be okay with that in the sense of walking still with them and not just leaving them on the side of the road to figure it out on their own. We have to be willing or, and also not thinking that we just know better than them and they just need to do what we tell them to do, but be willing to have that open conversation with people that, yeah, your life doesn't look like necessarily what we think Christians lives normally look like. And that's okay. And we're going to walk with you and we're going to figure out what this looks like together. Because I think that that's what the body of Christ is meant to be a place where we can walk together with each other and discern what are the way that we are supposed to call to follow Christ. Um, I don't even know if any of that makes sense. I think there, it's like, I think that there are moments when the church kind of needs to be like the bougie 
you know, kind of problem-free thing that it can be sometimes, you know, just so that things can get along smoothly and we're not dealing with it. But then, you know, on the balance, the church needs to be also the home for all of the messy problems that are going on in the world that people can't find a place to deal with except in this intentional community of people trying to make it through life together. Yes. Um, And yeah, I don't know. I'm, mm-hmm. I think a lot of churches are able to strike that balance. Um, I think there are other churches that do it less effectively. Really, whether that pans out just depends on a lot of personalities and personal histories and and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it really comes down to just, I think we as the church need to focus more on looking at the person's heart right. and intentions mm-hmm. than necessarily how their outward life life looks. Because I think it's really looking at the people and being like, their intention and their actions, are they wanting to serve God? Are they doing this with the attention of, I want to serve Jesus better and I want my life to look like a life that glorifies him. And when that is the intention of a person, that is what Jesus seeks for. It's not always the life that looks like we think it should look, but it's the heart that says more than anything, I want to pursue Jesus. And when we can, when we can walk alongside people who's that's their, their, their desire. I just think that's a beautiful thing and allowing people to walk in that. Um, Again, not sure if I'm making any sense. No, Um, I mean, I think, you know, everyone comes to Christ at a different point in their lives, mm -hmm. right? You know, some people may come with a firmer foundation and Christian history and thought, whatever. Others may come with nothing at all. And so it's going to be kind of a process of of change of heart, of understanding a lot of new things. And they shouldn't be discouraged for just being met where they are. You know, we need to meet people where they are and help them in the place that they currently are. It's, It's funny, like, in the Eastern Catholic Church, you know, when you get baptized, you also automatically then get what would be called in the Western Church Confirmation and First Communion at the same time, um, which doesn't actually happen in the Roman Catholic Church. You know, you get uh, baptism at one point, then kind of a little bit later on, you get First Communion, and then a little bit later on, confirmation comes. And I guess part of the reason behind that was, well, if you're going to get confirmed, you kind of have to know something about God. You have to be able to say something concrete. And in the Eastern Catholic Church, what they say is, well, really, what do you know about God when you're getting confirmed, right? Like, what great understanding have you come to at the age of 15 or 16 that some young person didn't have? You know, so... And that just gets, I just always loved that idea of, you know, meeting people where they are. And here in this case, we're talking about, you know, a newborn, right? Someone who is coming completely raw and fresh to God, and we can do that. And if someone's an adult and they're coming for the first time and we need to meet them where they are, we should meet them in that exact same way. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. You know, and then kind of going back with everything, I think my my last question is, because this is one I get a lot, is there's a lot of side B people who, I mean, I don't know about a lot. I don't have a number, but there are side B people who are discerning whether entering a celibate partnership is where God is calling them. 
So what would advice would you give to a side B person who's in that kind of discerning process? Or if there's two side B people who are discerning whether they should enter into a celibate partnership? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a really great question. I think the first thing I would say is kind of the type of advice that you would give to anybody entering into any type of other relationship, which is, you know, realize that in this person, you're not going to find what you need to complete Mm -hmm. yourself. You know, this should be kind of like the cherry on top to what you've already found. Um, You know, you're not going to be completed in another person that doesn't happen for anybody under any circumstance. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, make sure that your motivations are unselfish, right? Make sure that you're doing it because you want to grow with this person because again, you will the good for this person. Mm-hmm. And you know that you hope the virtues of this person will make you better as well. I think the other thing would be, uh, you know, I'm not totally settled on this. Uh, he and I, we entered into our partnership both being very, very strongly convicted of the side B position. Um, I tend to think that our our relationship works because we don't really spend a lot of time doubting that. Um, I think it would probably be easier um, for most people considering a side B partnership if they were more or less um, stable in that idea and on that path. I think if you're Mm -hmm. really, really struggling and if you're really, really doubting um, again, like taking some time for yourself and figuring it out, I think, will ultimately be easier and will ultimately cause you either less grief or just less confusion or just give you the space you need to really process because everyone knows who is side B there's processing time that that comes with this. Um, So, you know, don't, um, don't be afraid to give yourself that space. Uh, I think that's probably the best. And then I guess, you know, just some of the things that I said earlier, you know, just, um, be prepared that some of the challenges that you face, uh, as a gay person aren't going to go away. Um, you know, when you're in a celibate partnership as well, the self-editing will still be there. The sense of figuring it out, a lot of this out for yourself is going to be there. Um, that's, uh, that's all part of the package. Yeah. I, I totally agree with what you're talking about. Like finding some, making sure you both are, are concrete in your convictions, you know? One thing that I think is really critical just in living the side B life in general is really being able to take ownership of your sexuality. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can't, you have to be able to say I am gay, I think. And mm-hmm. therefore having like a self-sacrificial moment after you take ownership of it, right. For it to be a sacrifice in the kind of the form that Christ is asking you to, to make in a, in a manner like another way I kind of think of this is, you know, with the whole discussion that's going on about, you know, how people want us to describe ourselves and how they sometimes, you know, there's this idea that we, we can't use the gay identity label. And the way I always think about it is, you know, you can't tell people to take up their cross on the one hand and not identify with it on the other. Mm. Right. So you, you have to have that sense of self. And I think that very, very profound, like level of comfort with 
who you are and the decisions that you've made surrounding it, you know, before you embark on a relationship, which is at its heart about discerning that path together. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, as I mentioned earlier, so, um, you know, giving yourself the opportunity to process all of that kind of thing that you were mentioning, you know, coming to, you know, a, a very full self understanding, um, you know, being able to interface spiritually with this on a level that isn't going to be constantly a struggle. I mean, I think like coming to these, uh, you know, sort of these milestones is, is really, really important. Mm, Yeah. I literally think that's the most beautiful way I have ever heard put the sacrifice that we as side B Christians have to make. It's like, because it's true. It's kind of like, let's take an old Testament version idea of it. If you don't, admit that you own the lamb how can you sacrifice it to god as an offering yeah like you have to take ownership of it and i think it's even more beautiful when you take ownership of it as i am gay because also you're acknowledging that yes i could walk away and live the life that i my i would love that's an option right that is literally an option i can do But by owning this and owning that that's an option, owning the reality that I could go live as I would like, but I'm choosing not to. I'm choosing to lay this down and I'm choosing to sacrifice this for my love of Christ. Like, that's gorgeous. Yes. I mean, that's how I experience it. Yep. You betcha. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And, And I think that then, you also hit another point back a little bit ago that I forgot that I wanted to bring up. And I think it hits here too, is that when you have that solidation that you've already kind of gone through that processing, I really think that when you have two people who've gone through that and then come together, that's why so many times people who are inside the partnerships, then that partnerships help solidify even that, that confirmation that you've already received. Exactly. That is what then by saying we as two people who've, yeah, we've committed, like this is going to happen whether we're in a partnership or not, then that partnership also then helps to support your conviction as well. Exactly. Yeah. I completely agree. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you've come to a point that you've taken ownership of it and you've committed yourself to the path, you know, by that point, you've had a lot of time to think about it and you've been thinking about it and you have a lot of ideas about why you're doing it. And, you know, the opportunity to walk that path together with somebody else, you know, you grow a lot because you hear their ideas, they hear your ideas, you're constantly thinking about kind of the intricacies of it. And I think most especially is that there's a lot of um, thought that goes into kind of like the positive reframing of it, right? That when this, when this whole side B thing approaches people the first time, it's seen as a deprivation. Right. And that's why it seems so frankly repulsive to a lot of people. But when you're on the path and you think about it more and more, and you're again, you're living with the impulse of the spirit, you find ways to think about it very, very counterintuitively um, that become a source of beauty for you. Um, And you find ways of thinking about it that completely reorient your mind to what it is that you're doing. And I think being able to share those sorts of realizations you know, gives the relationship a certain positive energy that it needs. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
I want to thank you so much for being on and talking about this. I think this has been a much needed conversation. It's my pleasure. I hope that I said something useful. <laughs> yes, you did. Hopefully I didn't say something blasphemous. So that's more yeah. of my concern. Well, that's it for today, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And stay tuned next week as we continue this conversation on celibate partnerships with Max. It's going to be a great episode. You will not want to miss it. Also, remember, we're nearing the end of this season. So if you haven't gotten in your questions for the question and answer episode, go ahead and send those in. Can't wait to hear from you guys. Hope you guys have a great week. 